0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Who was Kentucky Senator John Brown? Why do historians and Kentuckians know so little about him? Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. The author of Kentucky's First Senator is Stephen Walker of Perryville, Kentucky. Mr. Walker had a career in government operations and defense while pursuing a varied academic path. He has a Ph.D. in colonial history. Today, he makes his home in an antebellum home in Perryville where he lives with his wife, Lynn, and his uh, book, his tome on Senator John Brown, Kentucky's first senator, came out a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, sir. And it's uh, uh, indeed an honor to have you uh, in Kentucky and uh, as a guest on our podcast.
1: Thank you, Bill. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about John Brown.
0: Well, before we get into uh, who he was and how prominent and important uh, he was to the times uh, and to Kentucky, if you would, uh, Stephen Walker, tell us a, a bit about the era, the the time period he lived. Uh, if you will, paint us a picture of the uh, post-revolutionary war and uh, the times that... Uh, uh, at that time, Virginians were, were b- beginning to find themselves. And just as a reminder to all of our listeners, there wasn't a Kentucky at that time. So let's begin there and let you just kind of tell us about uh, the early life of this, of this young person who grows up to be Kentucky's first senator. Yes, well,
1: John grew up in the, um, the Great Valley of Virginia, which was then, of course, the West. And and that was the the, the frontier. Um, threats from the Indians were uh, were local and regular. And, and during his upbringing, and he, he was brought up by his father, who was a, um, a Presbyterian minister, and his mother, who was a sister of William Preston, who was a, a sort of a a prominent landowner down the, the the western end there of the of the Great Valley. Um, we're actually looking at the pre-revolutionary period just very slightly. And so the, the war broke out literally as John was finishing his schooling and, and going uh, after preparation um, w- with the local school, which his father ran. And in fact, the local school went on through a number of stages to finally become Washington and Lee University in, Le- in, in Lexington, Virginia. John himself went initially to Princeton, and as he passed through Philadelphia on the way to Princeton, um, the the Congress was convened for the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So that puts him absolutely into context in the time. Um, He was uh, driven out of Princeton by the British when the army came through, and John Witherspoon, who was the principal and also one of the signatories, of the Declaration of Independence had to close the school. John, it seems uh, after I think uh, acting in some auxiliary capacity with the American forces, then went back into the Great Valley, which was not much under threat from the British for the next two years, but it was under threat from the Indians. At that time, John therefore decided to continue his education and he went on down to William and Mary in Williamsburg where he studied first under Edmund Randolph and then later under George Wythe until once again, the British came through uh, at the Yorktown period. And he was once again dri- driven out of school back up into the uh, into the hills.
0: Um, Stephen, if you will, uh, give us a uh, some uh, a date or two. And when you describe the the Great Valley geographically, uh, what what landmass are we talking about uh, when we are talking about the Great Valley? From from what point in Virginia and how far west do we go?
1: Well, um, you're talking from sort of Winchester, Virginia, which is high, I would guess maybe eighty to eighty to one hundred miles west or. West northwest of, of of Washington City, as it is, and then the valley runs all the way down to Knoxville, Tennessee. Basically, it's just a broad, broad valley, and settlers moved progressively further down and down the valley until they reached the stage where they could come o- over through the Cumberland Gap and, and into Kentucky, as as it then was. Um, the, the other point I guess to make, and I'll just step back and say. Um, at, after John had to leave Williamsburg, he then went and studied law with Thomas Jefferson, who was also uh, literally just over the uh, the dividing range from the Great Valley where John had uh, had grown up. So what, what you're left with then was the Great Valley was a, was a settler route for Virginian settlers, and they came over through the, uh, the Cumberland Gap I think a large number of settlers also came out of north carolina which is which is quite close uh, but it's difficult to understand precisely the nature of Kentucky at the time. People think of incremental creep of settlement, but Kentucky is not really that sort of place at that at that time. There was no steady growth of virginia if if you like to think the um well I, I like to think that the the bluegrass is a kind of an island um out in the middle of the wilderness, so the settlers had to make a real decision to leap forward into a rather unsupported place to to make the change. So at the time, uh, and again, it was a, the question of land ownership, like we, if we well, first of all, the the Indians were treating Kentucky as it was as as a kind of hunting ground and a battleground. That there had been no real Indian settlement in the area for about 200 years when the whites first started to move in there, I think because of disease and also because the tribes had been fighting each other. So it, it looked like an area that was vacant, but in fact it was used seasonally for hunting by the Indians and for fighting. Um, but this looked like an opportunity for white settlers, and, and they took it
0: did the um did the white settlers uh have uh, n- need to leave uh for uh how many reasons uh, uh escaping uh colonial rule uh, uh exploring new lands uh, they were um uh, in some cases uh, uh paid uh, by the the duke uh by the uh, royalty in Virginia to make these trips. And the other question, uh, part two is, did the North Carolinians also use that route through the gap uh, to get into the uh, part of um, Kentucky that we now know as the Cumberland Gap of the Western expansion? Uh, Yes, indeed. In
1: fact, Daniel Boone himself was coming out of North Carolina Henderson with his Transylvania Land Company was also a North Carolinian. So that there was, a, there was a claim there, if you like, on behalf of the North Carolinians that they had some opportunity to uh, to come into the area. Uh, keep, keep in mind that the royal decree had said no settlers were supposed to go beyond the, uh, the dividing range after 1763, uh, but that was largely ignored. Some settlers moved in, but not many. But a a number of um, uh, surveyors and what were known as the long hunters came in. So the land was known. Uh, Virginia thought it had the claim to the whole land simply by drawing all the boundaries west. And the Pennsylvanians thought they had a claim, um, certainly in the northern area. And, And Pennsylvanians tended to come in down the Ohio River so you had settlers like uh, James Harrod who came down the river and settled Harrodsburg and that was a year before Boone came in and settled Boonesborough so there were two two lines of approach from the east eastern settlers and and John Brown himself was uh, involved with the, the Preston family William Preston was his uncle uh, but you had uh, Surveyors, particularly such as John Floyd, who you would be familiar with, uh, and he worked for william Preston uh, and he also negotiated with um, Henderson to decide how the land was going to be claimed and managed. henderson had a uh, had an agreement with the Indians under which he thought he had bought uh, a huge tract of land um, so there's all kinds of the legal the legal situation was just uh, a complete tangled mess, but the bottom line. Your question is: most people wanted land; they wanted to go somewhere to settle and uh, establish their families.
0: Many of the uh, the early settlers uh, were were given the property uh, by uh, the. Uh, Virginia government uh, by the, the, the royals at that time. Uh, was John Brown involved in any of that, or did he enter Kentucky and uh, claim a stake, uh, as many settlers did?
1: Uh, John Brown had no uh, claim that, that I've been able to see in his own right. A lot of the Virginia military grants were awarded in, in Kentucky and some in southern southern Ohio. But John came in and largely had to buy land from other people who'd already settled and put their claims in.
0: Was he a man of great wealth?
1: No, he was a man of no particular wealth, it, and is no. So the, the answer to that is not. But he And, his,
0: to... and his first um, entry into Kentucky uh, was as a surveyor. Was he uh, was he working for the family or for the? For the friends of the family, that uh, is that what brought him to Kentucky?
1: He, he was working for the friends of the family. In particular, um, John Floyd and Walker Daniel both said they needed someone with legal skills and organizational skills to come in and help set up whatever was going to be the settlement, the official settlement of the new district of Kentucky. So John came in in 1783 just one year after the Battle of the Blue Ridge, So it was still a very, uh, very dangerous place. And almost immediately, uh, because Kentucky had been declared a district, um, the people, or the settlers there in, and I'll say, the, the, the people who were sort of in power locally um, identified him as being someone that they thought could represent their interests back in Virginia. So he was immediately appointed as senator for Kentucky in the Virginia Senate. So that is why he is the first senator, unambiguously. And they send him back to argue on behalf of the Kentuckians.
0: And I'm curious, uh, your use of the the word district, um, uh, and uh, you as um, a historian and and a researcher um, are familiar with the term, and I'm not. Uh, but uh, in reading and understanding about acquiring land and uh, the way the surveyors came in and the way the land was granted to the uh, military, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, district became what? What was uh, larger than larger than a county, um, smaller than a, a state, a geographic area. Of course, we didn't have boundaries at that time. Tell, tell us about the Kentucky district.
1: Yeah, the Kentucky district was an administrative district, if you like, for uh, for legal purposes. Uh, initially, at, at the time it was declared, there were just three counties in Kentucky, and then the, the counties kept splitting, and as you can see, we've now got whatever it is, 120 plus counties. But at the time, there were just three. But because they declared it as an administrative district, which gave them a, uh, well, an attorney representation and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, that that entitled them to a seat in the Senate in, in Virginia. So that was the, the the key point there. So they had a voice in the Senate.
0: So he would travel back and forth, um, back in Virginia. What uh, did the people in Kentucky suggest that he argue for when he went to Back to Kentucky. Why? Why did they vote him in as the senator of the district?
1: Yes, yeah, vote him in is a bit of a uh, a generous term. I think he was so- selected because he had the man with the skills. Um, John very quickly, because of his background, formed what was uh, known as the uh, the Danville Political Club, and and that was a kind of political think tank. And within that, he he thought what. Kentucky needed was, uh, firstly, some security from Indian attack, secondly, a guarantee of land titles, third, some kind of local administrative organization for government or self-government, and finally, a means of getting the produce out to a market. That's where you come to the question of Kentucky independence, if you like. And so uh, I, I see John Brown as the father of Kentucky independence. He spent the next eight years trying to work this through the the Virginia government, then the Constitutional Congress, and, and finally statehood. So I, I noticed you you had uh, a discussion about the the process finally, or the the frustrations of, of reaching statehood. Uh, he was responsible for all of that before, during, and after I mean, eight years. He was pretty well the sole voice um, arguing for Kentucky independence. He
0: needs. So he was doing that in Danville, Kentucky. He started in Danville,
1: Kentucky, where he, this is where he drew all the ideas together with mm-hmm. the lead the leading men in the district
0: who were his colleagues um at the um those first constitutional conventions um by name uh,
1: well uh, shelby's the mcdowell's um,
0: all Andre- of the prominent names that you would you would recognize Ritz. that were attending the 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 constitutional conventions that were working toward uh, government and rule uh and independence for the state of Kentucky,
1: and a bit of self-interest too. You've got people like James Wilkinson, who was not the uh, not the most honest of the characters in the district at the time. Uh,
0: so, tell us a little bit more about the progress that he made in uh, eight years. Uh, maybe doesn't seem like a long time, uh, but but to some uh, who were anxious for independence, I'm sure. Uh, and as you uh, referenced uh, another. A podcast, and I think humanity's discussion that we had about the the failed effort uh, that uh, uh, Kentucky missed uh, by just um, a a slight margin of uh, a few days, if not a day, uh, which uh, allowed Delaware to become uh, the ninth state uh, recognized instead of Kentucky. Uh, we had to wait our turn. So, talk a little bit about that whole process that that they went through, and did all that take place in Danville?
1: No, no, the ideas were locally developed in Danville, and it was John's job really then to go to Richmond and argue the case, and then progressively on from there. And there was a lot of misunderstanding, usually caused by a lack of swift responses. So keep in mind, it's 600 miles or something from Danville to Richmond, which he had to do Again, Well, in those days, the fastest way he would have done it was on horseback, but he was never going to do it very quickly. And it's the same for any other message. The other frustration I, I, I thought with the, the Kentuckians is they were enormously democratic. And if any decision was made, usually there was another group that didn't accept the decision. And they immediately sent off uh, their protest to Richmond saying, well, this, this isn't unanimous. We need to rethink it. So this this progress or the progression progression of proposals, just every every year it seemed to get thwarted in in one way or another, usually because of an apparent lack of unanimity or more likely because there was no delegated authority in the Kentucky district. So, um, and and that was in itself a, a frustration. You might like to think that Kentucky some people have called it a um, a colony of on the back of Virginia. It, it wasn't a colony at all because it had no colonial structure. There was no local governor. There was no no local person who could make a decision with any authority. There was nobody who could really raise troops with any guarantee that they were going to be paid for or that the the action was going to be authorized. And in fact, George Rogers Clark is is a perfect example of a victim of that lack of organization and, and and the distance between, if you like, the Kentucky district and the center of government in, in Richmond. So it was enormously frustrating.
0: Tell us about uh, why uh, Clark had such a uh, a time with that and, and what was put upon him that maybe was not uh, done to others.
1: Uh, his his problem was that he was a man who would take on the authority in in a power vacuum, act, act as he thought was was right, and then seek approval afterwards. And uh, unfortunately, there were one or two characters, Wilkinson being particularly one of them, who uh, were simply jealous of his position and, and his reputation. So they they smeared him, and they. Uh, well, they basically thwarted the idea that he could access, or he he could draw funds without authority. So they caught him up in the bureaucratic process, and it was it was personal.
0: I'm talking with Stephen Walker of Perryville, Kentucky, the author of the first Kentucky senator, Senator John Brown. Uh, we'll talk some more uh, about his life uh, in Kentucky and in Virginia. And um, I'm uh, going to, uh, to make a guess at his age at that time. Not hard to do that, uh, but we'll uh, confirm that with uh, Stephen Walker, and then we'll come back and, and ask what he did for the rest of his life, right after we hear from our great friends and supporters and underwriters at Spaulding University. Spaulding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at slash MFA or email school of writing at Stephen Walker is with me on our Think Humanities podcast today uh, with uh, uh, a book that uh, he titles uh, Kentucky's First Senator, Senator John Brown. And uh, before we get to that uh, age tease that I uh, gave just a, a moment ago, I uh, uh, Stephen, uh, let me just uh, from some of the, the book notes that I read, um, it wasn't only George Rogers Clark that was put upon by some of his um, maybe out of jealousy and uh, some of the other uh, 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 young uh, or maybe not so young uh, enemies that he had at that time. It was also uh, Senator Brown, um, that he was um, he had uh, per- personal political Uh, opposition, and uh, there were uh, interstate uh, motivations and influences uh, of the British, uh, as as you point out in your book, the French and Spanish agents. Um, He fought for the interest of his fellow Kentuckians uh, in due course, but he also had uh, plenty of opposition. So um, did he spend most of his time during that period in the Kentucky district in besides the time that he was going back and forth, or was that sort of a constant travel back and forth and guessing his age. Uh, let's see. 1757. Is that correct? Uh, let's see. That's the birth. And, and you said a year before the battle of blue lit. So we're talking, he was, was he in his, uh, was he going to be in his thirties or so when he was, when he was- Maybe my math is way off there. I thought I had that figured out a minute ago. How, how old was he when he, he was in Kentucky? Uh, he would have first... been, been 27 when he first Yeah, okay. In. I was going to say 30s. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So he was a relatively young man. Oh, he was a re- young man. Yeah. Uh, so, so did he spend his time traveling back and forth all this time? Yes, he did.
1: And in fact, hmm. uh, if you look at the way government used to run in those days, um, governments convened in the winter because they could do it between the harvest and the next planting so basically he was traveling over over the mountains every winter and back to it uh, to, to attend the uh, the various uh, congressional type meetings so,
0: hard so life so his life after after that and after he uh, he was at that time the, the representative of the people Let's take his life forward from that period. Um, and, and you tell us about uh, what he encountered and, and how successful he was.
1: Well, he it, it didn't have an awful lot of opposition within the Virginia government. It was just timing. So um, as, as as history, if you like, progressed, he moved forward with, with the events. So uh, they um, first of all, he became... Well, after he'd been the Kentucky Senator in the Virginia Senate, the Virginia government appointed him as a representative of Virginia in the Confederation Congress. The Confederation Congress then grew into the Constitutional Congress, and he continued as a a representative of Virginia in the new Constitutional Congress, but with the additional responsibility of being the delegate for the District of Kentucky. And then eventually, when he achieved the Kentucky statehood, he became uh, arguably, I I would argue, the first senator for Kentucky because he was the first choice out of of the two of them. Uh, And that meant, whilst he started traveling to uh, Richmond to represent the Kentuckians there, when the government then moved on to New York, he also had to move to New York. Uh, at which point, he uh, shared lodgings with James Madison, who he'd known from the uh, the, the Virginia government. Uh, and then, uh, whilst he was there um, in in the Constitutional Senate, he became a day well a, a weekly contact of um, George Washington because. John's responsibility on behalf of the, uh, the Congress was to take up the bills that Congress had passed each week and step George Washington through the thinking and the rationale that had led to Congress making the decisions about the proposed legislation for George Washington's signature. So he was right there in the uh, in, in the middle of things, he I, I in my book I describe him as being a half rung down from the top level of American power.
0: And as President Pro Tem uh, in the Senate, he was, as they often say, very trite to, to use the phrase, but he was a heartbeat away from the presidency.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, the, particularly, uh, I, I thought uh, there were two occasions he became. President Pro Tem. On each occasion, he stood in for uh, Vice President Aaron Burr. Uh, and on the first occasion, that was when the Senate considered the ratification of the Louisiana Purchase. And of course, that gave the Kentuckians ultimately the ability to have free passage down the Mississippi River to the Gulf, and they could finally get their produce out to a market in, in a cheap, cheap sort of way.
0: So uh, tell us about the the end of his life. Did he uh, did he end up ever coming back to either Kentucky or Virginia?
1: Oh yes, he retired because he built this beautiful house there at Liberty Hall in Frankfurt. And mm-hmm. if anybody hasn't visited it, I, I fully recommend that they should go and have a look. It's a it, it, it's a gem.
0: What can they uh, What can they learn from Liberty Hall? I've been there, been been through it, but but uh, I, I will have to tell you, I'm I'm not a student of. Uh, the uh, architecture, or uh, nor the 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 real history of it. Although uh, again, I've been through uh, as a, in a tour. Uh, what can you? But you tell me what people can can learn by just uh, being in uh, Liberty Hall.
1: Well, Liberty Hall. And there are various stories about Liberty Hall, and uh, it, it was. Um, there's a story that was designed by um, Thomas Jefferson. That's not. That's not the case. Jefferson wrote. John Brown, a long letter recommending how he should build the house. And and John actually adopted none of that advice. And the house he's built is the sort of house you would see in Philadelphia in that period. So let's say circa 1795 It's a typical sort of townhouse from that area. Um, You also have the house next door, which John built in this, in the same property. Uh, which he built for his son Orlando, who was his second son, and he was keen that both the sons had an, an, an equal inheritance. If you like, now the second house, known as the Orlando Brown House, is the first, if you like, classical revival house in in Kentucky. But both of them are significant buildings. If you look um, west of the Appalachians, they're leading edge stuff. They're not. They're not big but they're comfortable houses. Um, John also was, uh, after his reti- retirement from uh, from Congress, he, he did quite a lot of um, public works in Frankfurt itself. So he uh, he bought the local ferry. He erected the, the bridge. He uh, had a company that looked into bringing the water supply into town. Uh, when the first uh, state house burned down, John... Was given the responsibility of funding and organising a replacement. Uh, all at no uh, no risk to the uh, the Commonwealth government at the time, which was a big ask. When the when the, the State House subsequently burned down just before Lafayette's visit, he was again uh, a, a member of the trustees who had to uh, to rebuild it. When when Henry Clay was trying to move. The uh, the state capital to Lexington, uh, John John fought for the Frankfurt cause and uh, and obviously won, so he, uh, he he did a lot of good works for Frankfurt, but in terms of um, more things, uh, really he um, he helped set up the Indiana Canal Company to build a canal around the Falls of Ohio at at Louisville, if you like. But on the on the northern side of the river, and he did that in conjunction, well, with a consortium which included Aaron Burr, which is how um, John's name was drawn into the Burr conspiracy, if you like. So, uh, and then the, I guess the other thing he did in well, a couple of other things he did in retirement, um, he he was instrumental in setting up the Bank of Kentucky, which was an in, an interesting backflip, if you like, because um, the, the early Jeffersonian Republicans had been opposed to that Hamilton setting up of the uh, the federal bank, if you like. But by the time of uh, James Monroe, um, that attitude had been almost completely reversed. So the Jeffersonian Republicans realised there was a need for a uh, for banks that could uh, withstand various uh, r- runs, if you like, and have some well, so you could bring some confidence in, into the people that they could uh, exchange the money and still keep their value. And, and I guess the final thing he did—he was—he um, was a member of the synod of Kentucky for the Presbyterian Church. So he uh, he did a lot of a lot of good good works after after retirement in, in the local Kentucky sense.
0: It's been said that he uh, has been underappreciated by Kentuckians, uh, maybe even by some historians. Why do you th- think that is?
1: Um, yes, and I absolutely agree with that because I that, I find that when i was taking up the uh, the story, I thought how how can people or somebody not have taken up what a, you know what is a wonderful story for men's life? Um, firstly, you have to look at the feud between. John Brown and the Marshalls. So Humphrey Marshall, in particular, um, was uh, actively um, hostile against him. And the Marshall family used whatever leverage they could to basically smear John's name. And it was, I, I think, simply a matter of uh, professional and political jealousy. John was in the way uh, for the ambitions of the Marshall clan. Um, then you've got to look at, uh, you know, who writes the history dictates the history. So the history of the period is pretty well written by Humphrey Marshall in his, what appear to be two volumes, hmm. uh, because they're named that. But in actual fact, they're not two volumes at all. They are two fairly separate books. The first, first account is is actually uh, quite a good account and re- and reasonable and fair. But by the time uh, Marshall came to write his volume two, um, many of his political opponents were dead. And so that gave Humphrey a good opportunity to just uh, basically libel those who'd gone before, particularly a man called Harry Innes. Um, And John was about the only one left uh, left alive at the time, but he bore the brunt of a lot of that. So Mm. um, basically the Marshall clan did did a job on John. Now, you could argue John could have written his own version, but he, he's not that, he wasn't that sort of man. Um, so he, I think he always thought his reputation would speak for itself. Well, I guess the realists know that's not the case. So uh, that's that's part of the problem. I think the other, the, the other difficulty of uh, why have people not written about John Brown is um, there is no easy way to find all the information in one place. Um, I've gone through all of his letters that I could get my hands on which are considerable but also the best some of the best information is is found in correspondence let's say between uh, Madison and Washington or Madison and Jefferson uh, where they talk about John Brown as a third party and discuss what he's doing Um, and, and that's a it's a difficult thing for a researcher to pull through so i i think largely it's simply uh, the the difficulty of bringing all the information together then of course well i guess uh, that two generations mm-hmm. later the family feud kicked off again uh, <laughs> with family members writing accounts of their ancestors and, and and it just i i'm not sure that i mean the feud may still be going on even today between <laughs> family members so.
0: I should have uh, taken the time to 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 look at this myself, and I maybe should already know this. Uh, but is uh, is Senator John Brown a distant relative of the uh, of the Browns that we know of today?
1: There are some Browns here, yes, still, but I'm not quite sure who who is descended from that John Brown family and who is not. Uh,
0: research to go then, maybe, uh, well, especially by the Brown family.
1: Well, I, I think so. I mean, they've got a wonderful ancestor. I would have thought anybody with the name Brown would would be hoping that there's a connection there.
0: Uh, Stephen Walker, uh, it's been a pleasure. And um, I, your book, uh, The Kentucky's First Senator, is available at uh, Butler Books. Uh, Carol Butler does a, a wonderful job publishing uh, books of uh, all uh, nature um, in um, uh, primarily Kentucky books and from biographies to uh, coffee table, uh, wonderful uh, picture books. Uh, She's uh, a great friend of Kentucky Humanities and of the Kentucky Book Festival. And um, we uh, hope that you, uh, although this book has been out uh, a little while, maybe rest a little bit more, uh, drink some tea there in your Paraville home and uh, start on something else. Maybe you're the one to put together the Brown story, uh, uh, the modern day Brown story.
1: Thank you, Bill. I appreciate your uh, your time here. And uh, I, I would also like to add my thanks to Carol, who's done a wonderful job of production on this book. It's a fine volume, be- beautifully crafted, and it's a nice, nice thing to own.
0: Certainly is. I know you're proud of it. Thank you, sir. And we will see you again uh, the next time on uh, Think Humanities Podcast. Thank you very much, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.